Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Premier, thank you very much uh, for taking the time. And, and what is the energy emergency and how much of it falls at the feet of the current federal government? Well, what I, I called it an economic emergency here in Alberta, Roy, and a lot of it falls at the feet of the federal government. You and I have talked about this before. Uh, the latest job stats came out once again, Alberta, and, and after Newfoundland with the highest unemployment in the country, uh, with the Calgary and Edmonton, the highest urban unemployment in the country. The one thing that Alberta Alberta and Newfoundland have in common is that energy, uh, prim- primarily oil and gas, are the largest industries in those two provinces. And uh, uh, this past, I, when I said that, it was the day that Suncor, one of Canada's largest companies, announced 2,000 layoffs. Uh, those will almost all happen in Alberta, some in Newfoundland. Uh, and I pointed out, Roy, that if you could imagine a, a, a similar scale of layoffs from one large company in, let's say, Ontario, well, we had. We had a couple of thousand layoffs announced. Uh, I think it was GM in, in uh, um, out in Oshawa about two years ago, and and quite rightly that attracted national attention for the better part of a week. It became the number one issue, huge focus, and rightfully so. But Suncor laying off two thousand people in Alberta, it would be the per capita equivalent of an auto company laying off ten thousand people in Ontario, and that's just one company here. We have nearly 300,000 unemployed people. That would be like, uh, as again, that's uh, times four, 1.2 million unemployed Ontarians. Imagine that. I just try to get the rest of the country to understand the scale of what is happening here uh, to a province that has been the great motor of job creation and wealth production and government revenues. 20% of government revenues come from oil and gas. So part of my message to the Prime Minister was this. With all of the borrowing and spending that you are doing, how is, are we as a country going to pay for it unless we get the energy sector off its knees and back into full production? So please stop, you know, get your foot off the throat of the oil and gas sector. Allow us to get back up on our feet before imposing yet more damaging policies. Premier, what do you hear back when you deliver that message? And it's a legitimate message. The energy sector, the oil and gas industry could fuel so much, fund so much, of our infrastructure, healthcare, social programs that Canadians hold so dear and are so significantly important to us. When you deliver that message to the Prime Minister of Canada, the current Prime Minister, what do you get back other than, you know, the, the proxy poetry of Seamus O'Regan? Well, when I talk to the Prime Minister about this, he says that he appreciates this, he understands this, he understands there has to be a future for oil and gas in Canada. And, and, and I will say, uh, to the credit of uh, this government, they they did step in uh, to in, uh, purchase the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion project from Kinder Morgan when they pulled out. But the deeper problem, the deeper problem is that they pulled out in the first place. They pulled out because of regulatory uncertainty. In particular, let me just focus on one example of these policies that are that are uh, a body blow to this, the largest industry in Canada. Uh, Kinder Morgan pulled out because of uncertainty, largely around Indigenous consultation. They saw it as just an endless uh, uh, kind of uh, Groundhog Day of recurring court fights and battles, and it was just never going to end because of uncertainty around what constitutes 
the government's duty to consult under Section 35 of the Constitution. That's why they pulled out. And that's ended up costing us as taxpayers at least $7 billion to buy the pipeline. So now, finally, finally, in February of this year, the Supreme Court of Canada gave us certainty uh, after 30 years of charter jurisprudence and litigation on the duty to consult Indigenous people. They gave us certainty in the decision on, um, on, Keist- on uh, sorry, Trans Mountain, saying that the, that the Crown has discharged its duty to consult that, and that not... And that that no one First Nation has a veto right, and they pointed out that 121 of 128 affected First Nations support or do not oppose the project. It was critical stability, and now what's happening? The Prime Minister reconfirmed in the throne speech his commitment to legislate, uh, legislatively ratified the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. We all want to do so much better for our First Nations. I think the best way is economic development, including responsible resource development. Here's my point, Roy. That decision is going to radically change. It it may have a veto to any one small group. So to answer your question, the Prime Minister says rhetorically he gets it, but in policy, it's just one thing after another. Premier, when you hear the Prime Minister, and I know you're not opposed to this, but I'm just curious what your reaction is. When you hear Mr. Trudeau and Premier Ford of Ontario committing... $250, $280 million each to Ford Canada for the development of electric cars and the batteries that will drive them. And you know what Alberta requires. How do you react to that? Yeah. Well, uh, exactly. Um, You know, it's it's like we have here, we have the largest industry in Canada. And by the way, there will be a massive global demand for oil and gas for decades to come. Even the biggest critics of the industry accept that as a fact. Uh, and you're not going to have airplanes running on batteries. You're not going to have uh, huge industrial projects running on batteries anytime in the foreseeable future. Uh, but they will be running on oil and gas. Uh, well, you're not going to have the developing world, which is now burning uh, biomass like dung and and wood to heat their homes, to cook their dinners. You're not going to have the billions of people in the developing world suddenly living off of expensive battery uh, technology or driving Teslas. You're just not. They want to move up into the middle class, into a decent standard of living. They want to move from energy poverty to affordable, reliable, uh, and cleaner energy. And the single biggest thing we could do for them while reducing global greenhouse gas emissions simultaneously, would be to get our, our, our natural gas to them, our liquefied natural gas. But you may recall the protests this past winter that just about shut down half the Canadian economy. That was over building a liquefied natural gas pipeline, which every elected First Nations Council between Alberta and B.C. supports. Here's my point. The batteries are not going to, uh, you know, we should pursue battery technology. Great. And we actually have want to be part of that here in Alberta. We, we, we think we have some of the, the minerals could, could play a role in that. But there will still be people needing to move from energy poverty, out of energy poverty with affordable hydrocarbon energy, and we can be the providers. If it's not us, as I've said to you before, it's Putin's Russia, and it's the OPEC dictatorships. That's not good for the environment, and it's, not, and it's terrible for global stability. Well, and we, as we've talked about many times, we still import hundreds of thousands, 700, 800,000 barrels of foreign oil every day. 
to fuel the uh, the refineries in in New Brunswick and Quebec. When if we had a pipeline infrastructure, we could handle that internally in Canada, and everyone in this nation would benefit. Well, we just had a refinery shut down in Newfoundland. That's right. Uh, hundreds of people laid off. And uh, by the way, I don't want to sound like I'm special pleading for Alberta because the impact on them has been proportionally even greater. Uh, here's my point: they're, they're not going to turn off all the cars and trucks and and and, and stop burning fuel in, in Newfoundland. They're not going to just import. Now, they, of course, most of that feedstock did come unfortunately, from foreign oil imports, much of it from OPEC countries. Now it will be refined fuel coming in to Newfoundland. Now, what is one of the reasons for that? Well, I believe it, it may be the clean fuel standards. This is another federal liberal policy, which will add uh, potentially um, uh, as much as 20 cents per, per uh, liter of, of fuel that people buy and 3 to $4 per barrel of oil produced in the country for a trade-exposed sector. Now, what I'm trying to say is the refineries around the world in OPEC countries, um, they won't be imposing the clean fuel standards. They'll be able to produce 3 to $4 less expensively. That puts our industry at yet another competitive disadvantage. Here's my point. We're not asking for bailouts. We're not asking the feds to write us uh, uh, some kind of a, a subsidy to oil and gas. We're asking them to spend no money just hit the pause button at least for a couple of years on policies like the clean fuel standard, like Bill C-69 environmental reviews, like legislative ratification of the United Nations Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous People, and a bunch of other things. We've given them the list, and that could allow our industry to get off its feet from the COVID crisis, bring some investment back, hire a, start hiring people again, and then eventually, hopefully, you're right, Roy, when the price recovers, we can get something like Energy East done and displace foreign oil imports from eastern Canada. Yeah. Premier, I have one more question for you, and it doesn't have anything to do specifically with uh, with energy, but it's significant. Your government will not follow Quebec and Ontario with a return to COVID lockdowns. Voluntary measures for Edmonton, but not province-wide mandated. Speak to that, please. Yeah. Um, Roy, I, our view is, that the most effective approach to COVID is educating the public and encouraging people to exercise personal responsibility and common sense to limit the spread, but that we must, those of us in leadership, must not focus exclusively on the question of COVID-19 viral spread. We need to have a broader perspective on the uh, social, economic, physical, and mental and emotional health of our societies and to constantly uh, uh, push new uh, job-killing restrictions on the economy, um, indiscriminately shutting down tens of thousands of businesses, risks economic devastation. We're already coping with, as I've said, an economic emergency here to make that even worse with large and, and unpredictable interruption in economic life. Uh, I, I am very afraid of what the long-term consequences of that will be, the non-COVID-related health consequences, the mental health and emotional health consequences. The, we, we've already seen part of that, Roy. We've got some data, and that is on opioid overdoses. In Alberta, we've had 450 opioid deaths uh, so far this year versus, I believe, 285 COVID-19 deaths. That The opioid overdoses have more than tripled in our province during the COVID era. 
and there's complex reasons, but they're all connected to what's happened in this time. And so our point at going forward as much as humanly possible will be to focus on uh, voluntary measures, on pers- encouraging personal responsibility and public education. Um, and by the way, even the World Health Organization this weekend has said that uh, lockdowns are not a responsible policy response, that they were necessary perhaps at the beginning to flatten the curve, to increase the capacity of our healthcare system to cope. And we have done that very successfully in Alberta. So that is our approach, and and we hope as much as possible to to stay within those parameters. Liberal MPs filibustered the Parliamentary Ethics Committee and uh, the pursuit by the committee of information concerning speaking fees paid to the family members of Justin Trudeau, including uh, the We Charity speaking fees. And Mr. Trudeau, as you know... uh, um, Failed to recuse himself from cabinet discussions about the uh, the student grant, the $913 million student grant, sole source contract. Mr. Trudeau said we was the only charity that could handle it. And now everything's gone. Charlie Angus joins us. NDP member of parliament and uh, ethics critic for the party. How are you, Charlie? I'm good. Happy Thanksgiving, Roy. Happy Thanksgiving to you. What was the question? What was the question you wanted answered as opposition MPs at that ethics committee meeting hearing on Friday? Well, we met on Thursday to restart uh, the ethics committee after prorogation. And the prorogation interrupted our study into the WE scandal. And we had, as a committee, asked for access to the documents for the speaking fees paid to uh, Sasha Trudeau and Margaret Trudeau, and that had been agreed to. And what had also been agreed to uh, last summer was that there was going to be very strict protocols around it. I mean, it is not right to take private information of citizens and, you know, put them out on the Internet and start saying, aha, gotcha. This was to be done in a very specific way so that we could verify whether the very differing stories we've been told about how the Trudeau family were paid if it jibed with the testimony, and if it did, we could move on. But if it didn't, then it would be one more example of uh, this, you know, endless onion, uh, peeling the onion of misinformation that we've had relating to the Kielberger brothers' decision to pay the Trudeau. So I thought this motion was fairly straightforward. Uh, we had already agreed to this. We were going to restart the committees. And then the Liberals started to block and to delay and so they sh- the meeting ended on Thursday. Nothing happened. Friday, we held an extraordinary meeting. Um, Thanksgiving Friday, very unusual. And the Liberals blocked us for six, seven hours um, until finally the block got tired and went home. So we can't do our work until we get these documents. Uh, we can't do the work of the committee if the Liberals are going to continue to uh, rag the puck and run crazy interference. So... My question to them is, what's in those documents that they don't want us to see? Well, there was also the question of the redacting of information on documents that were delivered after the, pr- the proroguing was announced. Yes, we did have uh, the whole issue of uh, the redacted documents. I mean, I, I take a bit of a different tact on it, Roy, than um, the Conservatives, because everybody remembers Pierre Polyev coming in and throwing the documents all around, saying they were all blocked out. We actually read the documents that weren't blocked out, and that really piece together a lot of disturbing facts, like Minister Chagger's role in it. Um, I would like to get those do- documents unredacted, but 
in my 16 years, I've never met a government that is willing to turn over documents without a fight. It's same with the Harper government, same with the Martin government, same with this government. So to me, it's like a form of siege warfare. You've got to go in, you've got to be ready for the long haul, uh, and you've got you, you to count these uh, victories in terms of taking ground. And once you Well, it's for the people ground, of Canada. The next point. It's for the people of Canada, Charlie. We want to know what went on. We, uh, we have some information. We have the right to the rest of it. So when you as a member of Parliament of the Opposition and a member of the Ethics Committee asked a question on Friday, what would happen from the Liberal side? What do they do? Well, I think what was really frustrating, Roy, is, I mean, I, I laid out, you know, speaking for the New Democrats, why we needed this information. Because, again, we were told that nobody got paid. We were told the Trudeau family did not get paid. We found out then later that wasn't true. They were paid upwards of 500000 Then we found they were being paid after uh, Justin Trudeau became prime minister. So is this an attempt by the Kielbergers to buy influence? Then we found out from the We Charity board that they were told by the Kielbergers when questions were asked directly about payments to the Trudeaus, the uh, charity was told there's no payments. So why the secrecy? Then when we pushed the Kielbergers, they said, oh, no, Margaret and Sasha weren't paid as public speakers. They were paid to work the corporate events, the ancillary events, they called them. Well, if you're paying the prime minister's family to work corporate events for you, and then you hit the prime minister up for a $500 million contract, that's a pretty apparent conflict of interest. And that's the heart of this issue. So um, we were laying this out fairly straightforward, and we just got, uh, it's just like crazy buzz from the liberals of what okay, they would so Charlie, whatever obstruction they could to stop us from getting access to these documents. What now? Well, uh, this is not going away. Uh, we need to get this done. What really disturbed me um, on Thursday and Friday, Roy, is that the Liberals put up all the reasons why they did not want these documents out because they didn't want to humiliate the family. They didn't want us, uh, uh, you know, running out and blurting them all over the public. And we actually agreed uh, to put provisions in to make sure that this would be done right. And once we agreed to, to do what the Liberals wanted, they still wouldn't give us the documents. So that tells me, Roy, I... These guys are not playing. They're not playing honest with us, and I'm fed up. Um, if we have to stay all night, go all day, go all night, go all day, we will keep that committee running until they agree to turn over those documents. If do you think this is really? Do you think this is an extension of the proroguing of Parliament? Because the general consensus, I think, public consensus is the proroguing took place precisely because your committees were closing in on Mr. Trudeau. Well, it's funny, Roy, because we got the original 5,000-page documents uh, when the proroguing happened, but we did not get the f documents on the Trudeau family. Uh, and so we came back to get them. And, yeah, this is, a, this is like this filibuster to shut us down, to stop our work. Again, it's, I'm asking myself, what's in those documents? Um, mm -hmm. if, if what's in those documents contradicts what we've been told, then there's some very serious consequences, I think, for a number of people who testified. So yeah, we're going to yeah. find out one way or the other. Um, Canadians have a right to know this was happened in a pandemic. This is an unprecedented amount of money, and we just haven't had credible answers. And when you don't have credible answers, it makes you realize there's a problem, and that problem we've got to get a solution to. We feel like we've been on this journey for a while with Sarah and Jacob, and we have been. And this is the kind of ending that we really, really wanted the two of them together, and they are. And we heard some remarkable news yesterday from Sarah when she joined us. Hey, guys, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having us. What was it like when you 
laid eyes on each other last night uh, when or yesterday evening when when Jacob arrived in 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 Stratford Sarah what was that moment like for you Oh I mean as soon as I saw the car pulling in I just started crying and hyperventilating <laughs> uh, I I mean it was it really was like a dream come true I I it was like a pinch me this is an actually happening moment um I mean just absolute relief tears of joy it just Oh, I still can't believe it's real to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> Jacob, what about you? Let's expand it a little bit with you. When you left your home in England yesterday morning and headed for the airport and then the time on the plane until you did see Sarah, what was that day like for you? Long. It was a very long, long. day. <laughs> uh, no, it honestly it was a very it was a great day. I um the travel was fine. I had no issues. And I think I was just very excited to finally get over here and to see Sarah. So this morning, uh, you, you, you know, you're together. I know that you can't be because, Sarah, you're fighting uh, your battle with cancer and you have to take care of your um, immune system. We talked about that yesterday. But I'm sure, and we, we spoke about this as well yesterday, but let's follow up on it a little bit. The Just the, the fact that Jacob is there would help you, I'm sure, so much in just facing what's ahead for you. Yeah, so, you know, I'm sure many people know that I, I still have some radiation to go through in November. And uh, just to, you know, everybody arriving in Canada has to complete a two-week quarantine. So it was really important for us to get Jacob here as soon as possible, complete his 14-day quarantine, um, and then so that he could be with me during the second phase of treatment. I mean, I already had to go through surgery without him, and it was one of the worst experiences of my life, hands down. And just knowing that he's going to be here for the second part to hold my hand is... There aren't any words to describe how relieved and happy I am that he's going to be there during that difficult, difficult time. Yeah. Uh, Jacob, you are aware you're getting married in a couple of weeks, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of insane. I feel like my, my suit's out, got my shoes. Um, I just need to iron my shirt. <laughs> <laughs> So it's the 25th of October. You're both getting, you're marrying each other. And uh, what happens between now and the 25th of October? What are the plans? Uh, well, Jacob is going to finish his quarantine uh, in my parents' basement. <laughs> he has his own separate bathroom and bedroom and everything down here. We're, we're playing it very safe. Um, I'm, uh, I'm upstairs myself, and uh, we just have the last-minute plans to throw together. <laughs> Put a wedding together in two weeks no big deal right <laughs> no big deal now you listen when you look at what you've already overcome this is going to be just a breeze for both of you you know that yeah oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> let me ask you both this what about uh, what are your thoughts for others in canada still waiting for that call or the contact green lighting that their loved ones can enter this country i mean i jacob and i feel very very privileged that we are one of the first people to be able to reunite under this new exemption and I don't take that privilege lightly you know I, I recognize that there are thousands of Canadians who are still waiting for their exemption to be approved and I just want to say to them you know um, that it, it's worth it that the wait is worth it that they're in the last stages 
And, you know, I certainly understand the pain of seeing other people be reunited before before your own situation. I understand that. And but you just have to push through the last these last days and it's coming. <laughs> it's coming. It's coming for sure. Remind us remind us, Sarah, please, of, of everything you did to make yesterday happen. We talked about it on the air. Uh, when we initially started speaking, you and I and, and Jacob, uh, but but you put such a tremendous amount of effort into this, just in the letter-writing campaign. Remind everybody what you did. Yeah, so I hand-wrote 132 letters to government officials um, over the course of a few months. I uh, I started Twitter campaigns. I, uh, <laughs> you know, tweeted mercilessly, mercilessly emails you name it i i pushed in every every everywhere that i could uh including with mps you know i was mentioned six times in the house of commons and um we were we've been in the media i mean i don't i can't even count how many times now so we've received support from all political parties from canadians everywhere from the media i mean the support we've received because we really put ourselves out there the support we've received not just for jacob and i but for committed couples and families everywhere has been absolutely amazing and i'm so so thankful for it um jacob what about in the uk did your story get attention get traction uh, public traction in the uk uh, not really. Um, we had one article in a local paper from my hometown, and then we had one article in the Times. Um, the issue in the UK was that we haven't really had that much of an issue with our borders in terms of closures. Um, obviously, there's immigration issues, but in general, people have been able to come to the UK and just have to quarantine. Yeah. When you hear Sarah talk about what she did, all she did, to get you to come you know, be permitted to come to this country, take care of all the paperwork, uh, dot the I's and cross the T's. When you hear Sarah talk about that, what does that make you feel like? It makes, it, it's really annoying. <laughs> um, I don't, We had to jump through so many hoops that were completely unnecessary. Uh, mm. For example, when the government announced the exemptions, we were really happy, and then we found out that you'd have to go through an authorization, almost an application process. Um it's little bits like that which we felt weren't quite necessary. We see it in other countries where they've had just simple affidavits and it's been a much more a much simpler process. Um, I think the fact that we've had to go on this long marathon of fighting the government tooth and nail through literally every single step of the way when we had examples um, back dating back to sort of July, August time. Right. Um, it's kind of ridiculous. It has been kind of ridiculous. Many people are asking, I'm sure in the United States as well, how is it possible that Derek Chauvin could be granted bail? Well, Roy, uh, thanks for having me. And yes, it is a question that a lot of Americans want to know the answer to. How does an officer who's charged with second-degree murder, especially in such a high-profile case, be allowed to leave the jail pending trial? But the reality is, in America, as long as the officer is not a direct flight risk. In other words, if we expect he's going to come to court when he's required to, then he's going to be entitled to a bail, and that's what happened in this case. Could you give us a bit of a perspective on what the $1 million bond signifies? Well, it, it obviously is 
meant to send a message that this is a serious case. Now, um, if there's going to be a bond in a murder case, um, the law in America is such that it has to be a bond that the person can make. In other words, you can't charge somebody a $10 million bond knowing that they can't make it. If they're entitled to a bond, then it must be a bond that they can actually post, whether that's through their property or family or community support. But uh, they still want to send a message that it's serious. And obviously, a million-dollar bond is a serious amount. Mm -hmm. And the case on purely technical levels and on legal uh, bounds or, or grounds is treated as another murder case. The societal implications and what happened following Mr. Floyd's death at the hands or the knee of Mr. Officer, former Officer Chauvin, that doesn't enter the equation, does it? Well, it, it does only to the extent that it might make this officer more of a flight risk. You know, mm. if, given the not, not just the seriousness of the charge itself, but the fact that this officer is certainly under a lot of public scrutiny, uh, no doubt there are many people who have probably contacted his family or, you know, ha have very strong feelings about him and what he did, that they may want to harm him. Um, so, you know, you want to set a bond that's high enough to make sure the person appears in court and won't flee the country. Uh, but at the same time, it's got to be a bond that the person can make. And I guess the judge thought that a million dollars was the appropriate amount in this case. Paige, does it surprise you that Derek Chauvin has been allowed to leave the state of Minnesota while awaiting trial, yes. while out on bond? Yes. And, and, Roy, that's a great question. I mean, normally when you have a bond in a serious case, there will be many restrictions or conditions on that bond. And the most important is that you don't leave the jurisdiction. I don't think there's any question that uh, Mr. Chauvin was treated differently because he's a police officer. If you look at other murder cases in the U.S., I, I don't know what the percentage is, but it's a very high percentage, probably 80 to 90 percent are held in jail pending trial. So I do think he received some special treatment because he's an officer, and that probably also went into the fact that he's allowed to travel outside of the state. How long do you think it'll be before Chauvin's case makes it to court? Well, that's a great question, too, and that's a question, frankly, that, that the lawyers in this country uh, are trying to figure out, along with the judges, given the current pandemic, when can we have juries back in the courtroom? Some courts have tried to start the jury process, and, and they've put them in much larger rooms and spread everybody out, but we've only had a handful of trials, at least in federal court, uh, and it's a slow process. So let's assume it's a normal case. I would say you'd be looking at about six to nine months of pretrial motions and discovery and all the things that you normally do. But then I would tack on some additional time, given the pandemic and the backlog of cases that are also awaiting jury trial. Paige, what would you suspect the approach of his lawyers, of Chauvin, Chauvin's lawyers, is going to be in court? What, what will the case be they'll try to make? Well, I mean, let's first assume there's not some sort of a pretrial resolution. There's always the possibility of a plea. In fact, the majority of cases in the United States end in a guilty plea with a negotiated sentence. But assuming that doesn't happen in this case, and, and it's probably less likely in this case, given the strong feelings on, on both sides, his lawyers will have to focus on the actions that the officer took um, at the time being protected as either some sort of lawful use of force, um, unintentional consequences, 
I mean, police officers in the United States are given a lot of discretion when they detain someone and use force uh, during that detention and are rarely held accountable at trial. I mean, this is an exception to charge an officer with murder for someone who dies as a result of police force during the execution of an arrest. So the common law will give him a lot of defenses, but I do think this is one of those rare cases where the facts clearly support the charge, and I think the defense lawyers are going to have an uphill battle. Mm -hmm. In a case like this, or this specific case, would you suspect if it does go to trial, that it would be a jury trial or a judge-only trial? Or is that an option? It is an option. Um, But in most states, to get what we call a bench trial, which is a judge-only trial, both sides have to agree to it. And normally, as a defendant, you don't want to do that um, because all you need is one person on the jury to say, I'm not going to convict, and then it's a hung jury, it's a mistrial, and you have to go through the process again. So... I don't anticipate he's going to leave his fate up to one judge. Uh, I think the defense lawyers will demand a jury trial. When that's going to happen, nobody knows. So I've asked you the layperson's questions, and uh, I'd just like to turn this around a little bit, if I may, and I won't keep you too much longer. Appreciate your time. Uh, as a one of America's top trial lawyers, one top 100 trial lawyers in the United States, what is it that you will be looking for? What is going to particularly interest you as a lawyer from a legal perspective about what might happen in that courtroom, assuming there, if there's a trial? Well, normally you're, you need to focus on what did the officer know and when did he know it? When was it obvious that Mr. Floyd <clears throat> excuse me, was no longer conscious? The, the problem that I think the officer is going to have in this case is that apparently there was a history between Mr. Floyd and this officer. This wasn't a... A, a stranger to him. They, they had a history. And I think there will be a lot of evidence at trial about their relationship before that day he was killed uh, and whether there was any animus or any ill will uh, from the officer's standpoint against Mr. Floyd. I do know in some cases the state will be looking for evidence of racial hatred or prejudice. You may look to, you know, social media postings, text messages, They're doing that in another very big case in the United States right now, the Ahmaud Arbery case uh, down in South Georgia. That's not a law enforcement officer. It's a former law enforcement officer, but they found a lot of evidence just looking at social media posts and and other personal communication to prove that racial animus, which, again, would show an intent to do physical harm beyond what's necessary to make the arrest. And and that's the issue here. Did he intend just to arrest Mr. Floyd? Or was he trying to hurt Mr. Floyd? I don't think there's any question that he was trying to kill Mr. Floyd. I don't think that's what the state's going to try to show. They just need to show he was trying to hurt him, and he used excessive force. Okay, I have one more question since you mentioned Ahmaud Arbery, that case. Where does that stand right now? Well, it's still also waiting on a trial date. Uh, Two of the defendants remain held in jail. They will have a bond hearing in the middle of next month. The other defendant, um, Mr. Roddy, had a bond hearing. It was denied. So I anticipate all three of those defendants will remain in custody. Again, no trial date set. Uh, still the same problem of, of knowing when juries are going to be back in the courtroom. But sometime next year would be the trial date for that case. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.
Thank <laughs> you.